Hey, your polygamy listeners. 2,200 of you voted. And we've decided on a music winner for our contest to choose the opening bumper for this podcast. It was an extremely close vote. And My Disguise by Mikkel Douse won by only 14 votes. I want to thank all of our contestants. Each of them will get two free tickets to the Sunstone Symposium happening July 25th through the 28th at the Southtown Expo Center. Registration is now open for the conference. If you haven't registered, y'all need to come to that because you can come meet me and many of the guests that have been on this podcast. It's a big old fun Mormon conference. You don't have to be Mormon to come. Go to sunstone.org to register for the 2018 Summer Symposium. A big thanks to all the musicians and everyone that voted. Don't forget to support the musicians that submitted their work and support this podcast by donating at yearofpolygamy.com or becoming a patron at patreon backslash year of polygamy. And now for the winning song. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And tonight we have a really special guest, someone who I really think you're going to enjoy. And as often as I can get on the voices of women, I try to do that. So everyone welcome Mary Ellen Crace. Mary Ellen, can you say hello? Hello. All right. Tell us who you are. And also if I pronounced your last name correctly. You totally did pronounce my last name correctly. I have been in the fundamentalist community for about eight years, strongly in the fundamentalist community and left the LDS church about five years ago. And since then I've made a lot of friends and I've learned and grown so much. And I'm currently seeking a family to court still. And uh, I just got out of a relationship. And so, I currently am also assisting with the TV show, uh, a, a major network TV show focusing on polygamy. And it's a positive polygamy show, which is great. And that's it. Yeah. And we can't really talk much about the show because of the contract, but uh, mm-hmm. we have talked about the show before and we have had a guest of the show on the program as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Well, let's back way up. What I like to do is get to know you and hear your story from your own mouth with your own words. So um, talk to me. Where were you born? Give us the basics. Where did where did this all start? Okay, so I was born in Taylorsville, Utah, and um, I lived there for a majority of my younger years. Um, My parents divorced literally the day after I turned eight years old. Um, and, or sorry, 
um, they divorced literally the day after I was baptized into the LDS church. And then my parents got back together and re-divorced and remarried. And my parents finally divorced when, uh, for the second time when I was 11. And then my mother and I moved to California and I did all of my forming years in California. I did grow up in the LDS church. However, I didn't really have a very good priesthood holder leader in my um, life. And um, I was in and out of foster home, uh, not foster homes, um, yeah, foster homes. I was in and out of foster homes um, when I was younger than eight due to abuses in the family. So, yeah. And then that led me to California. Um, so, when so my wait, mom. Just a minute. When, uh, so, when did you move to uh-huh. California? So, I moved to California when I was 12. And okay. that was a huge culture shock because I moved from Utah, where everyone was Mormon and understood Mormon culture. And uh, I, I, moved to somewhere where they didn't understand Mormon culture. There were maybe 10 kids that were LDS in my uh, school. And I was always asked if I was a polygamist. And so as an LDS person, I defended that strongly that I was not a polygamist. (laughs) When I was young and I was living in Taylorsville, I remember near the point of the mountain out where now I know where the RCA is for the AB, I remember out there, there were polygamists. And I remember that being a conversation. And there was a polygamist family at the end of our street. And I remember my mom sitting us down and telling us that we needed to be nice to them. And I didn't know why. Um, apparently, my older siblings was teasing them, ended up being Duggars. Later on, I found out, I asked my mom a couple of years ago who they were. And she said they were Duggars. So, or Dargers. And so, that's say, kind of Duggars. fascinating. I didn't know that Duggars were polygamists. Huh? I said I didn't know the Duggars were polygamous, but the no, Dargers not the sure Duggers, are. The Dargers. <laughs> but they do have probably the same amount of children. So, right. I just remember that house multiplied every year. <laughs> they were on. They were on about a hat, about two acres, and I swear that house multiplied every year. So <laughs> it was pretty funny. But yes. I remember there was a. I I remember I wanted to get to know them, and I wanted. I didn't understand what was wrong with it. Um, I remember I had that mindset when I was little, but you know, the, the, you're, you're def- when I moved to California and I was constantly defending, um, my religion and I was constantly defending my religion against something that people in my leadership told me was a bad thing and a wrong thing. And it's not what we do. I became very defensive about it. <laughs> um, And I remember, uh, so fast forward a little bit, I graduated from high school. I, I was very wild child. I was the child that was the smart aleck in primary that said, you know, that, uh, during the, I love to see the temple song, I'd be a total smart aleck and say, I'm never going there someday. Like I was the total (laughs) bratty kid and I had no testimony whatsoever as a child. And in my youth, I mean, I was the only kid in my ward that didn't go to seminary because they did early morning seminary in California. And I was like, nope, not going to do that. So I think I went to seminary like three times and I just, I didn't have a testimony. And so I was a wild child in my twenties, my, my teens and my twenties, I did have a daughter outside of wedlock, my oldest daughter, my 17 year old. And my bishop told me if I didn't give her up for adoption, that 
I would be excommunicated (laughs) and I would have worse punishment if I didn't give her up for adoption. So that didn't help my feelings towards the church whatsoever. So So, so I I refused. How old were you at this time? Um, I was 18. So you're 18, pregnant, and the bishop tells you to give the baby up for adoption. So I imagine this is the time bishops are, it's starting to change a little bit, but really when the LDS adoption agency was, you know, what do they call it? Forget. Oh, it was hardcore. Yeah, they were just really pushing it. I was massively pregnant in my church house with sitting next to my mother. And on a fifth Sunday, they, it felt at the time, like they literally brought the LDS family services, social worker there to tell the entire congregation. If you know someone that's pregnant outside a wedlock and literally I, re- I remember feeling everyone looking at me. Yeah, and that was, that's a intense, I mean, they, they are no they longer around, <laughs> but yeah, they, they invested a lot of, uh, energy and energy it, yeah. in this campaign yeah. to to get women to give up their children and it's funny because the narrative was if you don't do it you're being selfish right and oh, now yeah. since it's sort of shifted there's this this opposite uh thing that says if you give up your baby you're being selfish so it's like women can't yeah. win yeah it was it was very much a feeling of i am I don't know what I'm doing. I'm stupid. I'm foolish. Yada, yada, yada. And so I, I didn't give up my daughter for adoption. I kept her. I said, and, and when I would tell them I did pray about it and I'm supposed to keep my daughter, they were like, well, you're not praying hard enough. And I was like, uh, okay. (laughs) So I kept my daughter. She ended up being autistic when she was a very, very young baby. Uh, She started having seizures at an early age and she didn't really look at you. She wouldn't, she was not a normal baby. She would crawl on the, on the, on the blanket on the grass and she'd go to one edge of the grass and touch it and jump back. And she just, she was a very um, interesting child. And so I put her in early intervention pretty quickly. I mean, I wasn't a stupid teenager, but I mean, I knew that there was something not there. My daughter she wasn't speaking. She was nonverbal. Um, she was pretty violent. When she was three, she was diagnosed with autism. And then she, it was, it was great because once I got the diagnosis, I was like, yes, okay, that's what it is. And um, that became my life passion. And so I was in, I was in school to be a teacher at the time. And so I switched my degree to psychology. I have a bachelor's in psychology and I have a bachelor's in interpersonal communication And then I went to graduate school, and this is where my story drastically changes. When I went to graduate school, I will back up just slightly. I moved when my oldest daughter was three from California to uh, Utah. This is where she got her diagnosis for her autism, and she had quite a few more resources than California could afford her, which was great. So at this and time, at this point, is it just to you and your daughter? Or do you have a support system around you? My support system is my mom. I am the I'm the youngest. I, I tell this to people all the time. I'm the youngest of eight, but I'm also an only child of eight. I have a I have a different relationship with my siblings and my father. We're working on it currently, but I just don't have a very close relationship with them. Um, I'm probably going to tell you more in this conversation tonight than I 
talk about with my siblings and my father pretty much ever. So, and what do um, you, if you, if you care to speak to it, what do you attribute yeah. that to? Um, probably to, there are some personal things that I don't want to share. Um, but there are just very differences of growing up. A lot of my siblings grew up with my father. When, when my parents divorced, most of my siblings were teenagers and they could choose who they could live with. And most of them chose my father and I chose my mother and we growing up to a certain point, we grew up together, but then things changed when my parents divorced. Um, My dad became more lax and my mom became more rule. And so they didn't like the rules. So they went to dad's house. And so they were more raised by my father, which was a more relaxed environment. And um, my Heck, two of my sisters got pregnant within a couple of years of living at his house. No, they didn't have. Were both your parents faithful Mormons, mainstream um, Mormons? So my mother was a convert and my father was a convert. My mother grew up in an alcoholic house where my, where her father was um, a child molester. And her mother, um, because her father was not attracted to women, he was attracted to little girls. My grandmother cheated on him on a regular basis. And so she found out about the church when she was a kid and she, um, she converted and got baptized when she was um, a teenager and then became active in the church when she was in her mid twenties. And then my dad converted because my mother was Mormon and he really loved my mother. (laughs) And so he actually converted and got baptized in Vietnam in the Vietnam war. They met on a military base, but then um, he went to Vietnam and my mom thought he'd never see, she'd never see him again. And he converted to, to uh, Mormonism, which was kind of a neat story. But so when you move in with your mom, uh-huh. It sort of separates you from your siblings and your father. Yeah. And so you grew up with her. And then as you go through this new experience of raising a daughter and then a special needs daughter, mm-hmm. your mom is sort of your support. And and are you what's mm-hmm. your relationship with the church like at this point? That's actually later in my story. Okay. Um I, I, so, okay. At that point I was a wild child and I just didn't go to church and I was not a part of the church whatsoever. I did a lot of crazy wild things and, um, I did what most teenagers and 20 somethings do in California where, you know, it is what it is. And it's my past and it is, you know, I've repented and yada, yada for all of that. And so I just don't like to talk about details of it, but it's my past and it's a sordid past. I have two children outside of wedlock. So definitely we'll, we'll call it a learning experience. Yeah, it was definitely a learning experience. Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't change any of it because I would not be the person I am today. Um, Yeah. That's how I kind of look at things too. I think that, you know, we all learn in the ways that we need to learn. Yeah. It's my life motto that I, it's my life motto that everything happens in the perfect time, in the perfect place with the exact people. Everyone that's listening to this podcast is listening for a reason. Every 
interaction that I have with a random person at Walmart or a smile that I give to someone is for a reason and a purpose because we're here to learn and grow. And so why wouldn't we be having those experiences, even the really, really horrible experiences in life that people, you know, you have, I'm writing a book right now. It's called When Life Gives You Crap, Throw It in the Garden and Make Beautiful Flowers. Because I, I explain to people a lot that everyone, no matter who you are, has a ton of crap going on in your life and has a ton of crap that happens to you. And you have two choices. You sit in that crap and you smell like crap. And then you're just kind of stinky and no one wants to be around you. Or you throw it in the garden because you have to have fertilizer to grow fruit. You have to have fertilizer to grow flowers. And you throw that crap in the garden and you grow beautiful flowers from it. Those are your two choices. And so I choose to throw my crap in the garden and grow from it. That's beautiful, actually. I like that. So I'm actually looking for people that have stories that want to go in the book. So oh, good. If you're interested? Well, let's make sure we we'll talk about link. that at the end. Yeah, let's yeah. get in contact information. Okay, yeah. so so you go through. It sounds like it was a learning experience, but maybe a difficult mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it was a difficult time. It was I was being abandoned by the only group of people that I knew. The people that I defended all through high school. I didn't have a relationship with a man that was a healthy, loving relationship. And I don't fault my father for that. He grew up in a hard family himself. And so I don't fault anyone for that. It's just, it is what it is and it happened the way it happened and it's okay. And, um, but it was, it was definitely a learning growing experience. So I separated from the church and I refused to go to church And at the time I was living at my mother's house and with my new baby. And she told me if I didn't go to church that I had to move out. So I moved out (laughs) and I rented the house next door, which was just an extension of her own property. We had a lot of crazy stuff happen in California. We had, we lived in San Bernardino, California. And when we moved there, it was not crazy and violent and drug ridden and crime ridden. Um, But in the 10 years that we had lived there, it had turned into garbage. And so when my oldest was two, we moved to, um, my mom said that she always wanted to, my mom said she always wanted to retire in Cedar City. So she she said, why don't we drive up there and see? And I said, okay. And we drove up here and she bought a house and that was all she wrote. And so (laughs) we turned around, went to California and sold our house. And it was in 2003, just at the beginning of the big bubble and, or at the beginning of the growth. And so she was able to sell her house for a decent amount and be able to buy a house here. And, and I went to school again to be a teacher. This is where my oldest grew up essentially is here. And this is where she got diagnosed. This is where they put her into Um, some more intervention to help with her autism. And I dove into everything that I could possibly learn about autism. And I, I jumped into research and, and, and whatnot, but this has nothing to do with my religious story. This is just my personal story, (laughs) but I graduated from SUU with a bachelor's in interpersonal communication. So nonverbal communication um, because I like reading body language and psychology. 
and mostly clinical psychology. And I was going to go to school. All of my research was all on families and marriages and relationships and, and autism. And so I naturally went to graduate school to become a marriage and family therapist. This is, this is where my polygamous story actually starts. When I was just before I moved up to Salt Lake, I was working as a cashier at Walmart. And I remember there were a lot of women that would come into Walmart that were polygamous, that were FLDS, that were in the, were in the prairie dresses with the bouffant hair. And um, I live in Southern Utah. They're here, they're around everywhere. Right. And I just remember they just had the biggest smile and the biggest aura around them. And they were the sweetest women in the world. And I just remember thinking, gosh, I just want to jump across this checkout stand and tell them to take me home with them because I could tell how loving of a relationship they had with each other. And I could tell the spirit was with them more than I had, uh, more than any Mormon I would know. And I, I just remember having that feeling this one particular day. And this family would always go through my lane. It was really funny. They would always go through my lane as the cashier. And, um, and, and we would get to know, we, we, we slowly got to know each other, but I never had the courage to say, can I learn about you? <laughs> so when I went to graduate school, I was in a very small cohort of people. I was actually in a small grouping of about 20 other students that we went through our entire graduate school program together. And I had this one friend that was always talking about polygamy. And she was always talking about how she was frustrated that in the afterlife, she would have to take, her husband would have to take more women. And she was so frustrated by this. And at the same time, I did, even though I have family in Salt Lake, like my father lives there, my sister lives there, I didn't have close relationships with them. But even though I'm not close with the church, I happen to live in Bountiful where they have this little tiny branch. Who would think there was a branch in Bountiful? But it's basically the rich Bountiful people don't want to mingle with the poor people of Bountiful. So they made a branch out of them. And it's this one street in this one these couple car apartment complexes that they were assigned their own branch. And we had everything there. We had gay guys there. We had um, uh, the, uh, smokers. It was not normal to go to church without it smelling like smoke. But that ward loved each other. It was, it was literally like living in Mississippi where there was only five families in the ward. It was really a unique, very cool experience. They accepted you no matter what. And they loved you no matter what, which is really what Christ-like love is all about, right? Yeah, that's that's actually sounds lovely. It was it was so wonderful. Like I, it, it was the it was the most beautiful little ward I've ever experienced, and I was like, this is true love. This is true Christ-like love. And about three weeks into me being in that ward, the bishop calls me into his office, and I'm like, oh crap, I'm in trouble. Did I curse in church? Did I say something wrong? What did I do? Like I was, I literally, I, my only experience of being pulled into the bishop's office was to be reprimanded because I was always in trouble, right? Because I was the bad kid in church. And the bishop sits me down and he goes, so tell me a little about yourself. And he, I explained who I was and he goes, well, I was wondering, Sister Grace, would you be interested in taking a calling? And I was like, 
sure. And I was like, what's the calling? And he says, well, how about Sunday school? And I'm thinking like primary. Okay. I'm thinking primary. And keep in mind, this little ward only had seven kids in the primary. So I was like, okay, that's not so bad. And I was like, okay. And then he starts talking about gospel doctrine. And then it like clicks in my head. I'm like, oh, I know that word. Oh, that's the big adult class where everyone talks big words and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, buddy. Whoa. You don't want me leading your flock and let me count the ways. And then I literally like spewed to him all of my sins over the past 10 years since the last time I spoke to a bishop. And I was like, exhaustified by the end. I was like, I've never read the Bible cover to cover. I've never read the Book of Mormon. I went to seminary three whole times. Like I literally just spewed everything out there. And I was like, um, and when I was done, he's like, are you done yet? I was like, uh, I guess so. He says, well, sounds like this is the perfect calling for you. And I literally looked him straight in the eyes and I was like, it's your funeral. I was like, okay, if you still want me to lead your flock, so be it. And I have to say that man was the most inspired man I have ever met in my entire life. That day literally changed my life because I don't do anything halfway. And uh, I certainly wasn't going to stand in front of a room of people and look like an idiot. So I certainly was researching everything that I was teaching in class. I became so involved in this ward. We had a group of sister missionaries that were dedicated just to this little teeny branch. And there were three sister missionaries. And so they always needed another person from the ward to do splits with her, with them. And so I was, at the time I was in graduate school, I had nothing to do during the day. So I would usually in the mornings go and donate my time to my daughter's school and then I would, and then I would go and do sister missionary splits in the afternoon. Well, this became a thing, and I did it literally almost every single day. <laughs> so, needless to say, I was getting very much a burning in my bosom and very much a calling to have a testimony of Christ and of the gospel. And one day, I, at the time, and so about six months later, I was. I was the gospel doctrine teacher, and then I was also in charge of all family home meeting for the entire ward because the ward was a big conjumbled mess of either converts, coming backs, or complete wayward souls, right? <laughs> so we all did uh, family home evening together. And of course, I also taught that class and I organized it and whatnot. And it was pretty fun. And so, uh, so I was very involved in the ward they were going to have the open house for the Draper temple or they were going to have the dedication to the Draper temple. And Lydia Draper uh, was my great, 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 great grandmother. And so Draper, the city of Draper is not actually named after anything in particular. It's actually named after my family members, um, the Drapers um, who were members of the church and you know, they were dedicating the Draper Temple. It was a big deal for my family, for my mother. Ever At this point, everyone else in my family had kind of left the church. And my mom and I were pretty much the only church members left. And I'm very, very close to my mom. My mom's my best friend. And I literally ran home to do this podcast because I was at her house um, helping her. She's a 74-year-old sweet woman. 
And, um, and so this girl from church comes up to me and she's like, well, are you going to sit next to me during the Draper temple, you know, um, dedication? And I said, I don't have a temple recommend. I can't. And she goes, you don't have a temple recommend. She goes, you're the gospel doctrine teacher and you're in charge. Of, you're the one of the most spiritual women I've ever met. And I was like, wow, that is a phrase that has never come out of anyone's mouth in their life before. If only this woman knew me two years prior, she would never have said that phrase. But I truly did. I had a complete change of, of who I was as a fundamental person um, because of the gospel and because of reading the scriptures and because, because of researching. And so um, I marched myself down the hallway and I sat down in the, in the branch president's chair uh, across from him. And we just had that fun of a little relationship. Right. And he goes, well, what can I do to help you sister Grace? And I said, I want to get a temple recommend <laughs> thinking I have to take temple prep classes. I've got to repent. You know, I know, I know I've got at least a year coming to me with all the stuff that I've already repented to him for, you know, and um, because that's just the way that it's always been. And I sit down and he opens up his book and starts reading me the questions. I was like, well, wait a second. Um, don't I have to like repent for all the stuff that I admitted to you six months ago? <laughs> and he goes, you know what, Sister Grace, I've never seen someone change so much in my entire life. Oh, wow. And, and he goes, you're a completely different person than the person that came into this church house six months ago. So I'm pretty sure God knows you're good. I was like, okay, continue. <laughs> so I walked out of that room with this golden ticket and, um, and I called my mom, my mom's birthday was two weeks later. And I called my mom and I told her, I told her she needed to come up to Salt Lake for, uh, for her birthday. And she's like, I don't want to go up there. And da, da, da. she's like, why do you want me to go up there? And I was like, well, I'm kind of taking my endowments out for your birthday. And she was all excited. And it really, you know, it made her so happy. I mean, I have a friend from Mississippi that flew in just to go to my temple, to, you know, to, to go to my, get my endowments. And people were freaking me out about getting my endowments out. And they're like, don't worry. It's just, it's all symbolism don't worry. <laughs> they were like freaking me out. And I was like, what are you guys freaking me out about? And they're like, don't worry about it. Just know that everything, it's all okay. Everything's symbolism in the temple. And I was like, good hell. Like, I remember like hearing all these funny things about like people running around with um, capes and being naked <laughs> in the temple, all these crazy things. When I, was I would little. not be opposed to capes in the temple. That would be really cool. Like superhero capes. Yeah. Just, I mean, yes. we're Mormons. We're creative. We could do a lot of beautiful things with that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, so I remember <laughs> people just freaked me out. They just, I mean, they really scared the heck out of me. And then, um, and so I go through the temple and I remember talking to the temple matron and I was like, people kept freaking me out. Why were they freaking me out? I was like, it doesn't, it wasn't anything weird. I was like, it was fine. <laughs> and she goes, well, things used to be different and they changed. And so it changed for the better and it's okay. I was like, well, what changed? Well, I can't tell you. Well, why can't you tell me? 
because it's part of what changed. <laughs> I was like, well, crap, that didn't do nothing for me. So <laughs> I was like, no one would tell me. And so Google is a really great friend of ours. And so uh, I, I hit the Google and I looked it up and I found out about other things that were in the temple that was missing. And I kind of felt ripped off. I kind of felt um, like it wasn't um, that I would, I didn't get the full thing. You know, I didn't get the full job, even though they said, oh, it's okay. It still counts the same. Well, no, it doesn't because I didn't get to hear all, you know, I didn't get everything. Around how old are you at this point? At this point, I was 27, 27, 28. Okay. So did, did learning these things trigger a faith crisis for you? Did anything like um, that well, happen? The thing was, is I was in the middle of a faith crisis. I was in the middle of going from a wild child to I am so religious now. Like I was completely religious at that point. And, um, I was just kind of like, well, I just feel like no one's going to tell me what it really is. And so, um, at the same time, I'm having this friend in graduate school talking to me about how awful polygamy is. And I find this website. I don't even remember what it was back then. They had Yahoo groups and Yahoo groups was a thing back then. So I jumped on a Yahoo group. I Googled something and it took me to a Yahoo group and it was an AUB Yahoo group. And it explained it. And I was like, oh, this is it. But then there was this other stuff about polygamy. So I was like, ooh, I'll have really good comeback stuff for my friend, right? And so I started learning about polygamy and I started learning about United Order and different laws and different different things that they just didn't teach in the Mormon church, and did in you the LDS find, church. Did you find... And Sorry, huh? did, what was more disturbing to you than the information that you found out about or the absence of it in your LDS experience? Um, I think at that time I was just a sponge. I was just sucking up anything uh, because at that point, like I really hadn't read the Book of Mormon. I hadn't read the Bible. I, I really wasn't religious as a kid. And so I really didn't, like I knew who Nephi was, but I didn't really know anything else. You know, I just, I wasn't... I didn't really understand everything. And so at this point, and, until I was the gospel doctrine teacher, and then at this point, I was researching everything to make sure I didn't look stupid in front of my class, actually, because I just, I, you know, everyone's fear is to look stupid, right? And so, well, that's my fear. <laughs> um, and so I just didn't want to look dumb. And so I didn't want to look like I didn't know what I was talking about. So I was just researching like crazy. I said something that I pulled up from one of these websites and I got in trouble for it. And they're like, oh, you can't talk about that in church. I was like, oop, my bad. Sorry. And I think I was talking about law of consecration or something. Anyway, so these same subjects and these same things kept coming up. And then I made an a, a friend that was from the AUB. And um, I, was, I was dumbfounded that there was a group of polygamists that didn't wear prairie dresses and that they could choose their spouses. Right. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> and so really quick, and, let me just ask you uh, this. When a lot of women find out this information, it's usually a painful experience when they read about polygamy and how it works. Just even reading about it can be upsetting to women. So yeah. why was, why do you think your experience was a little different? My experience was extremely different because 
I was in this soak up a sponge phase of my life that I didn't really have a preconceived notion about anything. I just wanted to, I really wanted to know what parts of the temple I was missing. I really wanted to know what ordinances were not there. I wanted to know more about the things that the church wasn't teaching that they used to teach about. And so I really researched really, really hard. And um, I ended up kind of bumping into this fundamentalist world. I did grow. I I mean, I almost knew immediately um, like gospel, like um, Adam God doctrine. Like that wasn't even, I, I mean, I don't even think I had to pray about it because like, as soon as I heard it, I was like, duh, like hashtag duh, like, oh my gosh, this totally makes sense. I've always practiced law of consecration with my friends because my family's not very big. My family's my mom. Like that's my family. Um, my family's my mom and my kids. That's my entire family in my emotionally. That's my entire family. I've always practiced like law. Like when I just have extra, I give to my friends. Like that's just the way I've always been. And um, when I learned about women choosing polygamy and women having the choice of who they could marry, I remember going, wow. There, I remember sitting in the temple because they told me if I went to the temple more, I would it would it would come to me and I would be more enlightened about what was missing in the ordinances. So every day, um, I actually had to back off my sister missionary splits and I'd have to go to the temple three days a week and I'd go, I'd have to go on the sister missionary splits two days a week because I wanted to go to the temple so much and I wanted to learn what it was that I emotionally was missing. And I mean, I memorized that entire script for the entire temple routine. And I remember one day sitting in the temple and just having this overwhelming feeling that I know that I'm going to be in polygamy one day. And like every other Mormon, they just are at peace that, you know, when the church takes it back, I'm the first one in line, right? I I hear that so much in the church. Hey, if, when the church takes it back, because nowhere in church doctrine does it say polygamy is bad and awful and terrible and, you know, whatever. I mean, it's very clear in the in the research um, that, that John Taylor says that it's going to go away, but it will come back. Um, and so there will be a come, there will be a time that the church does take it back. And... And so, so I just, I had that faith and I had that knowledge and I've, I've never naturally been a jealous person. Um, I've always been a very giving and um, emotionally giving person to my friends. And I've kind of practiced this with, you know, how I kind of give to my friends. And so, um, so I just kind of knew deep down that I was going to be a sister wife one day. It was just something that I knew. And and I just kind of was at peace with that. And I just kept my little fundamentalist friend, you know, as my token fundamentalist friend, right? And then I graduated from graduate school. I moved back home to Cedar City. And I started working at a, at a I can't say the name of it. Um, I started working at a clinic for people for free. And about three weeks in, keep in mind, I was fresh green from graduate school. So I was brand new therapist. <laughs> um, and I worked at a doctor's clinic that we had the doctor side, we had a dental side, and then we had a mental health side. 
And my whole afternoon canceled except for my very last appointment at four o'clock. So I was like, great, I have to stay here because I live 45 minutes away from St. George. This couple came in and they were very distraught and they went, I just remember watching them go into the medical side. I think he had broken his hand or he'd hurt himself or something. And I get called into the room and the woman was crying and the man was upset, very, very noticeably upset. And they were clearly FLDS by what they were wearing. And the lady looks up at me and she says, I, I'm, I'm upset. My, my, (laughs) she basically says, I'm upset. My sister wife decided to stay behind and we left yesterday. We left the FLDS yesterday and my sister wife and her kids chose to stay behind. And I, I'm grieving my sister wife. And so I took her back in my room and he came in once his hand got fixed, he came in my room and we talked about it and, Something changed for me that day. (laughs) Um, I had done all this research. I had had this big growth in faith and something changed in me that day. I remember her sitting across from me and we probably sat there for two, three hours helping her work out the grieving of her sister wife. And she stopped at one point and she said, why aren't you going to call the cops on me for being a polygamist? And I said, I believe everything that you believe in, except for Warren Jeffs. And I said, I know that I'm going to be a sister wife one day too. And so she trusted me. The fact that an FLDS person walked into a clinic and even talked to a therapist is a freaking miracle. Like they just don't do that. Like in fundamentalist communities, you just don't talk to a therapist. And she did. And, and we grew a really great rapport and they came back a couple more times And then they started sending their friends to me and then they started sending their friends to me. And then I kind of became like the polygamous therapist. (laughs) And then I started kind of seeing people that were not in the fundament in the FLDS community. I start seeing people that were former and people that are independents and people that were Centennial Park and people that were in pretty much I. Almost saw almost every group other. I think the only group I didn't see anyone from was uh, Kingston's and Nailers. I think those are probably the only two groups that I really didn't see anyone about. But at the same time, I felt like it was a disservice to my clients to sit there and grill them about their religion. Because as a therapist, that's not my job. But I wanted to be sensitive and and, and culturally appropriate. So I would research their churches and research their beliefs and, you know, what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate to say. It's kind of funny because like Centennial Park, you can wear skirts to your knees, but if you show your forearm, you're you're scandalous, right? Um, (laughs) But in the AUB, you can't wear earrings or, you know, that's scandalous, right? Like, so it's just, it's, it's interesting the different nuances each of the groups had and, how they believed in different things, you know, even though they're all polygamists, they all believe in polygamy kind of in a different direction sometimes. Um, You know, one group, you know, everyone lives in one house together and it's like horrible if you live apart. Other groups, no, you don't live in the same house ever. And, um, you you know, women can't share a kitchen. And, you know, it's just, it's just very interesting. 
um, learning about the different cultures. But at the same time, I was going to the temple every single day when I would get off work. So I live 45 minutes away from where I lived or from where I worked. And so as soon as I was done working, I would go over to the temple and do a session and then come home. Well, every time that I would go do a session a day that I worked with some fundamentalists, clients, I had a different experience and I started realizing it. I'm like, oh no, I'm converting to the dark side. Um, how, did you, how did you square that <laughs> in your really... mind? I mean, whenever, that happens to a lot of folks. They feel yeah. a lot of guilt, almost as yeah, if they're like, betraying something. I'm like, well, you know, I just, I, I, um, I would toe touch quite a bit into fundamentalism back and forth for a few years. And I would go to my local AUB ward for a couple of months and then chicken out and run and go back to my LDS ward. And, or I, I would go on a date with a guy that I met in an LDS dance and he was fundamentalist. And I was like, and I mean, dude, there was one guy that was fundamentalist in the entire room. I start going out with him and he ends up being AB. And I, it was funny cause I cornered him on it. Cause you know, they, they're not open about if they are or not. Right. So one day I just flat out asked him, I was like, why do you wear long sleeve shirts in the middle of summer? And he goes, because I asked God if I should. And he said, I should. And I go, you're fundamentalist, aren't you? And he goes, what makes you say that? And I was like, honey, I felt your ties <laughs> when I hug you. And he laughed. He's like, what do you know about that? And I was like, I know more than you realize, buddy. So you mean the ties in the garment at the front, which yeah, some yeah. listeners might not know what that means, but yeah. Yeah. And so I was, I was laughing. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you can't fool me. Literally two seconds later, my fundamentalist friend from, um, from another church comes around the corner and I'm like, okay, I get it. God. Okay. I get it. Um, a couple of days later, we, me and this guy ended up not working out, but, um, <laughs> so I started going back to church again and, um, I, I really are going, I would go to my LDS ward at nine o'clock in the morning and then this fundamentalist church started at 11. So I would skip relief society and run over to the other building <laughs> and then run back over to my Mormon church and pick up my kids from Sunday school. <laughs> uh, it was, it was crazy for a little while. And, and I was, I was trying to negotiate in my head, like, what am I doing with this? But I have such a draw to it and I know that it's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm so scared because I didn't want to take away that relationship that I had with my mom going to the temple every couple weeks together, submitting names, doing genealogy together. Like my mom and I, we had a team system for doing genealogy. She would look it up and research it and I'd sit on the computer and enter everything. And I mean, we had a system and, and we'd take those names through and she had such pride in it. And I didn't want to take that away from her because I was the youngest of eight and I was the only one in the church. And I knew what that meant. I knew the gospel meant, but I was in love with the gospel, not the church. And so in the meantime, I 
had another baby outside of wedlock because I wasn't feeling supported in my ward. Uh, I, I, I'm not blaming me having my baby on that, but for the first time ever in my life, I dated a man and it was engaged to him for six months and I didn't have sex with him. I was a moral woman. Um, <laughs> and that was a miracle back then. And, um, I, I, you know, I, ha I was holding a temple recommend faithfully and, um, I'm, you know, I, I, actions happened that created my daughter one time. <laughs> and I went to the bishop literally the next day. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh. And I had my temple recommend taken away and I didn't marry her dad because he insisted on a temple marriage and I was pregnant and I wasn't going to go to the temple pregnant because I don't want to burn in hell for eternity personally. Um, <laughs> you don't do stupid things like that. So, um, so we broke up and, um, and here I was again, a single mom. And again, I don't fault him. He has an amazing wife now and he's, um, a very faithful LDS man. And he's pretty much the only one that doesn't know that I'm a fundamentalist now. Pretty much everyone else in my life knows, but, uh, he's pretty much the only one that doesn't know at this point. And so I, uh, I had a little bit of faith crisis again because here I am again without a temple recommend again, having a baby, having them say, go meet with LDS social services. But I had this amazing faith at this point. It was different than when I was 18 years old. I was 29 and I had a master's degree. I lost my job because I worked for uh, a practice that was LDS based and um they told me that I didn't have their values because I made a mistake one time. And wow. um, I was like, gosh, wasn't that like the whole reason why Christ came like was so that we can have forgiveness. And that's between me and God, not me and my employer. And so um, that was really hard on me because you asked me if I had a faith crisis earlier when I was going through learning about fundamentalism and, and whatnot, it was, I didn't because I didn't have faith. I, I was just literally a, a sponge at that point. At this point, I would, I was already absorbed and I was already trying to negotiate going between church and the faith of gospel. That was really hard for me. At that point, I met another man that was, he ended up being, insane and he wanted a sugared mama pretty much and when we were engaged he was a very sweet loving gentle kind man and then as soon as we got married literally the next morning he woke up and he was laughing and I said why are you laughing and he kept laughing and it was scary laughing at this point and I said why are you laughing and he says, you stupid bitch, you fell for every line I ever gave you. And then he proceeded to lay out who I really married. And he's like, you're over 300 pounds, you're fat and you're ugly and no one's going to want you. And what kind of a marriage therapist are you if you can't keep a marriage longer than a day? And you're stuck with me. I quit my job. 
and you you're the one that can make $200 an hour. So you get your fat ass out there and you go work. So I did. I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, it was, it was literally slapped me in the face. My baby at the time was about, so it was, it was August. So it was a couple of days after my birthday. So um, it was August. And so Donna, oh, sorry, bleep out her name. Um, my youngest was, she was seven months old, eight months old. And um, he constantly stormed around the house and was very violent. And one day my oldest dog has a, my oldest daughter has a service dog for her autism. And one of her jobs is to help regulate when someone's emotionally triggered. And he came out of his room one day and he was angry about something. The baby was crying and he came in and he said, you shut that baby up or I'll give it a shut up sandwich. Sorry if I'm offending people. It's, you know the words that happened. And um, I said, you're not going to touch my daughter. And he kicked the, so the Glinda, our service dog went and was trying to calm him down with her, with her um, signals to calm him down. And he kicked her. I said, you don't kick my dog. So then he picked up his dog and threw it at the wall and killed the dog. So I picked up the phone and called 911 and got him out of my house. Wow, so, that's intense. Yeah. So I don't there's one thing that I don't stand for. I will stand I will I will stand behind a man that cheats on me. I will stand behind a man that is verbally abusive. I will uh, well not abu- not verbally abusive, but one that doesn't understand communication skills. I will stand behind a man uh, for a lot of things, but I will not stand behind a man that's abusive. And I grew up with that. And I'm not going to allow my children to be in that, to be in that. So he left and I pretty much immediately went back to fundamentalism. He wanted nothing to do with being a polygamist or fundamentalism. Um, You know, he knew that I was researching it and that I had strong feelings towards it and he wanted nothing to do with it. And yeah, when we were engaged, he told me that he was, he wanted to adopt my kids and take us all through the temple and be sealed together and all these wonderful things. And uh, it all turned out to just be a bunch of lies. <laughs> and so around the same time, my oldest daughter's dad, I found out that he was sent to prison for 10 counts of child rape and was going to spend the rest of his life with 10 life sentences at the point of the mountain in Utah. And at this point in her life, she'd only met her husband, her dad, three times in her entire life. And she was 10 at this time. I remember sitting in the temple when I got my recommend back after I had had the baby and I got the recommend back. I remember sitting in the temple and going, this is my haven. And I remember sitting on the women's side and there was probably 20 women. I looked over to the men's side and there were maybe 10. I said to myself, I remember saying to myself, God, no wonder there's going to be polygamy in heaven. There are so few faithful men that can help the faithful women. And I asked my mom one time, I was like, so you're not remarried. What are you going to do in the afterlife? Do you you, you think you're going to stay sealed to dad in the afterlife? And 
she goes, oh, no, God will help figure it out. And God will put me with someone that I meant to be with. I said, but mom, if all the ordinances are supposed to happen here on earth, we do all these baptisms for the dead and all these ordinances for the dead. You just want some random person in the temple to pick a name? How do you expect that to, to work out in the afterlife? And she said, it'll work out and, and I'll figure it out. Right. And God, God knows, God knows me enough. Right. But in my mind, I went, well, uh, how am I supposed to learn and grow? And at this point I had learned so much and I had done marriage therapy with a lot of polygamist families at this point. And there was a different air about polygamists and, and, and polygamous families. They were so much more loving and dedicated to each other. A polygamous man has to convince every one of his wives that he loves them every single day. Those women are so dedicated and loving to him. And sister wives are called sister wives for a reason. Do you fight with your sister on a regular basis? Yeah. But at the end of the day, do you love your sister? Yeah. So sister wives very much are called sister wives for a reason. They're, they they have a sisterly bond. You are not always happy with your sister. And you don't always agree with everything your sister says. But you still love her. And you want the best for her. And I remember I was going through this whole mental crisis. And um, one morning in July, I I tend to have a really good connection with the other side at this point, because I'm doing a lot of introspection. I'm doing a lot of praying. I'm doing a lot of meditation. I'm doing a lot of communing with God. Right. And he would always wake me up at three o'clock in the morning when he wanted to tell me something. Right. Not in a crazy way, like I'm an insane, you know, schizophrenic or something, but you know, I would have a dream about something and I would wake up and I would ask God what that meant. You know, like in my mind, I would say, I would try to decide what it was that it meant. And I would pray about it. Is that the, is that the conclusion you're asking me to get with this or about this story or whatever it is that you're sending me? And um, this particular night I woke up, I, I had had a dream that I was in the St. George temple and there was another woman and a husband and me. And I knew that we were married and my great, 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 great grandfather is John Taylor. And, um, and I remember him coming and saying, you know, you keep toe touching in this. You really need to just, you need to find your family. You need to stop playing around and you need to go find your family. And I was like, but mom. And he goes, no, you need to go find your family. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah. and so I woke up and it was three o'clock in the morning. So I prayed about, I didn't even have to close my eyes. I knew instantaneously that's what it was meant. And I was like, Ooh, Really? And so then I prayed and it was like, okay, I need a third confirmation. I'm going to go to the temple tomorrow and I'm going to pray 
so at the time I was going to the St. George temple and there's this really cool room in the celestial room and it's a ceiling room. And you guys see a picture pretty often um, about the 12 apostles um, when John Taylor was the prophet in the St. George temple. And there's these two staircases that go up and behind those two staircases is a ceiling room. And that's in the celestial room. And so no one ever goes up there. No one ever goes in there except for like me. <laughs> so um, this particular day I got off work and I went over there and I went in the celestial room and I went up to the ceiling room and I could feel my great, 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 great grandfather. And I could feel the spirit of the family that I was meant to join. And I looked in the mirror and I didn't see a particular face, but I saw a man and another woman and I knew instantaneously I was supposed to be married in a plural marriage as a second wife. It's so funny because people talk to me. It, nowadays, people are like, I don't see you as a second wife. You're very much a first wife type. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I'm pretty sure God wants me as a second wife. <laughs> and um, so, I, uh, so I took that and I picked up the phone when I left the temple. I called my friend. I said, this is what happened. And this is my dream. And this is what happened at the temple. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And she's like, well, I guess I'll see you on Sunday. And I was like, okay. So pretty much that was my complete break from the LDS church. And I was very much believing that I was going to be part of the AB. Uh, they had and really quick. How is your like? Mm -hmm. How is your mom and your kids? How are they responding to these? I changes? didn't tell my mother for a really long time. <laughs> my mother had no idea. My oldest daughter did, and it, and at the time, my youngest was she was a toddler, so she didn't really she didn't get it. So for her, it was church and playing with friends, so she didn't care. But um, my oldest, she was fine with it. She was actually, um, at this point, my uh, I've actually worked really hard with my oldest daughter. She went from being severe autistic to Asperger's. Um, to, she went from severe autistic to high-functioning autism to Asperger's to last year, we were able to get the diagnosis to come back. And it said, even though autism is an uncurable disease and because... Um, she has had the diagnosis of autism since the age of three. At this time, she does not have enough significant difference in the major areas to be considered autistic anymore. And it was just like total win. <laughs> I mean, people that tell me that autism isn't curable, I say, look at my daughter. <laughs> and, the, and the aspects that she still has of the autism are the good parts of autism, like the incredible sense of strictness to certain things. And um, uh, it's, it's really great. Anyway, uh, I don't remember why I told you that. Oh, I, I was just asking about how, how my kids took it. Oh, yeah. so because she went through this whole journey with me when she had gone from severe to moderate to uh, mild autism 
And she saw this change in her mom. And so she also researched a little bit with me. And I, I remember telling her, don't do this unless you want to do it. I, I 100% believe that people should not be in fundamentalism and polygamy unless they strongly believe that they're called to do it. It's not for everybody. And it's not um, something that you just choose because you see it on TV. So I, at this point, my the ward that I live in currently they have the head cheerleader, the homecoming queen, the football quarterback. Um, they're all in the youth program in our ward um, where we currently live. And they're very much Utah Mormon. <laughs> How do I say this politely? They are very cliquish and they did not include my daughter ever in anything. Um, she was very much the outcast. She didn't have any friends in the ward. She didn't have um, anyone trying to take her in. She's autistic. Why is no one helping take her in? Not even the leaders. The leaders were even cliquish with the girls and excluding my daughter. And so that was really, really rough on me. So that that was a little bit of a factor to us leaving the church. And so in the fundamentalist churches, they accepted her and they loved her and they they took her as she was. And I loved that. And after church, people would stay around and they would talk about religious discussion and they would phil- philosophical, oh my gosh, I'm going to screw up this word, uh, philosophize. Is that a word? Yes. Philosophize. Yeah, we're going to accept it. I'll allow yeah. it. This is a new word in the dictionary <laughs> with Mary. Um and they would sit and they would they would talk philosophy about religion and they would talk about their belief system on different topics in religion and and they would there was just so much more love and so much more things that i would picture jesus christ to be doing after church that you just didn't get in the lds church lds church you go to church you do your classes everyone snores through sacrament or plays on their phone and then everyone goes to classes and they play on their phone still. And then they run out of the church house as fast as they can to make it to the football game. Fundamentalism, it's not that way. Everyone sits around and talks about the gospel. And they talk about their love of the gospel and the love of fundamentalism and the and the and the love of each other and the love of sister wives and they and they sit around and they talk about these wonderful things and i loved it i loved it i loved it i loved it and um there was a time that i did not end up joining the um there was a time that i didn't end up joining the aub um lynn thompson had just I was actually at the meeting where Lynn Thompson became. Now the explain to those who don't know, aren't familiar with the AB, what Lynn Thompson, who Lynn Thompson is. Okay. So um, at the time, Lemoyne Jensen was the leader of the AUB church and, um, and, or the AUB, they don't like to be called a church, but um, he was the leader of the AUB and he was pretty much on his deathbed. Lynn Thompson was the guy that took over after him. And so this was about a week and a half, two weeks before Lynn died or before Lemoyne died. And I was actually at that church meeting where he was called to be 
the new leader of the circle of friends. And that's their leadership council. And, um, and I remember that there was an audible gasp in the room. And then I started learning more about him and, um, and then the God, and then God does this really cool thing and guides you to something else. (laughs) And I, I pretty much, even though I knew about all these churches because all my clients would tell me about them, you know, I would research them through my clients, but I hadn't actually gone in a lot of these communities other than the AB. And so I, uh, I researched and I learned, uh, it was so hard. I remember it was so hard to get in, in anywhere because everyone was so scared that you were a spy, (laughs) Um, which was awful and terrible. And I hated it. And no one wanted to talk to me. (laughs) <laughs> but this guy down in Concho, Arizona, Moroni, was my friend. And I created a Facebook. So this is Moroni Jessup, who's been on the podcast a few times? Yes, yes. And so I created another Facebook that I was able to have an outlet to talk to other fundamentalists. And it, it has a, it, you know, it's another name. It's not my name. It's another name. So that my friends wouldn't know that it was me. And it doesn't have a picture. It doesn't have any information about me. Um, but I was able to, it was basically an open, free um, conversation piece where I could be, I could, I could talk about fundamentalism and not be judged or, you know, treated like I was a leper. And it was somewhere where I could, I joined like every Facebook group on Facebook that had anything to do with fundamentalism. And I was on there constantly every day, all day um, when I wasn't working. And I was always um, talking to people and, and this guy Moroni, he was so sweet. And he says, come down to, come down to, come down to Concho and come to, come to a conference down here. (laughs) And uh, I, 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 he said, I have friends coming down and why don't you come down and meet me and meet some of my friends? They're all independents. Some of them are in churches. Some of them aren't, but you know, we're a great group. And, uh, this minivan pulls up to my front yard with three men (laughs) end up being LeBarons in the long run. Uh, (laughs) Full of it's my house, and me and my oldest daughter jump in this van and go down to Contra, Arizona. My mom thought that I was kidnapped by polygamists because at this point I had told my mother that I decided to be a polygamist, and she disowned me a couple of times, and that was really hard because she is my best friend. And um, and she was convinced that I was just being manipulated and that I didn't know what I was talking about. And she still had in her mind what I was as a teenager. And in my early twenties, she, she didn't really understand the conversion process that I had gone through. And, um, and so that was really hard on me. And so one of my neighbors told her that I'd gone in a van with these three men and taken my daughter. And she was convinced that I was, kidnapped by polygamists and taken to a cult, I think. And she would called me with a lot of very worried voicemails and 
I was like, no, mom, I'm fine. I'm just down in Arizona hanging out with some friends. You know, it's fine. And uh, I came home and she was very concerned. But when I was down there, I met Moroni and his family. And I love them. And if you're listening, Moroni, hi. And um, they're an amazing family. And they're, they're, they had an amazing group of people down there. And, um, and it kind of it, it gave me peace that there was hope. And it gave me peace that um, I was going to be okay. And I... Uh, I learned a lot about the culture and I learned a lot about um, faith. I learned a lot about being faithful to talking to God myself. And at the time I had, I mean, I went everywhere. I went to Centennial Park and hung out. I went to, I mean, I just went everywhere. I, 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 I probably talked to every single group out there. And, um, and then there was this one church that I had, there was a guy that he said, well, have you looked into this other church? I said, well, no, there was this one guy that said that he was part of your church and he smacked me on the butt and he said he could, cause he was a polygamist. So I don't want anything to do with your church. And he said, I don't think that's us because I don't think I've ever heard that name before. And I said, well, you make sure this guy isn't there and I'll come. <laughs> and so once I knew that he was not there, I said, okay, well, I, he's like, I follow your Facebook. I watch you. He says, you give everyone else a chance. Why don't you give us a chance? And I was like, okay. He said, but you got to drive all the way up to Provo to go to church because that's where we do church. I was like, well, crap, that's like three hours away. And he's like, well, we have someone that can take you. So it's okay. So I did. So I went out there and I knew that that's where God wanted me for the time. And he knew, I knew that that's where God needed me to be for the time being. And um, that day I actually met my, my, I didn't know at the time, but my third husband Um that I met him that day and he was actually really rude to me. Uh, it's kind of a funny story, but um, in that church um, I'm uh, for, for the respect of the church, I'm not going to reveal what church it was um, because I have left that church and I don't want them to feel like I am um, putting their church down, but my experience is my experience. And so, um, and I hope that you guys can understand and respect that, but I was part of a church. Um, I mean, I, I was asked in my second meeting if I was going to get baptized. And I was like, no. <laughs> um, but I actually knew deep down that I was going to be baptized. They, they, they have a different take on fundamentalism a little bit. They kind of have more of a Jesus was a, um, a Jesus was a rabbi. And so they take on a lot of rabbinical um customs and traditions, which is great. And uh, that really did pull me in. <laughs> um, but I did hear from the law, from the grapevine that they followed um, this practice that's called the law of purity. <laughs> and as a therapist, I know that sex is so important in a marriage and that um, sex is a vital part of marriage um, even though 
it's not the most important part of marriage. It is a very vital. You can tell the pulse of a marriage based on how often the spouses are intimate. And so um, I heard about this law of purity and that this church in particular church uh, followed law of purity very strictly. And I asked the particular person that I was learning from, I said, if this is true, I would want nothing to do with it. And he said, no, we, not everybody practices it, but a lot of families do. And, um, and I, I accepted that and I, I and I accepted that is the answer. And um, so I did get baptized into that church after that I got that as the answer. And about six weeks in, I was impressed to go to the prophet and um, put in uh, the way that they do it is they, you submit your name to marriage. Um, so you, when a woman feels like she needs to get married, they go to the prophet and they basically say they want the will of the Lord and who they want to marry. And at the time I was, <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm giving secrets to this church or not. Well, I guess I'm not saying the name, but um, uh, at the time, you know, I, everyone, I mean, I was kind of the new shiny penny. Everyone knew who, you know, this new girl is coming in she's kind of loud and she's fat and she's, you know, not scared to tell people that she's a polygamist and <laughs> she's, she's not a scared person. And they're very quiet, a very reserved, a very, um, not, I wouldn't say secret, but they're a very reserved private church, which is one of the reasons why I'm being very respectful towards them by not revealing the church. And, I was part of this church for six weeks when I was very impressed to um, submit my name for marriage. And so I went to the prophet and he asked me, you know, <laughs> actually what's funny is he asked me a lot of questions that you would see on a dating profile. <laughs> um, what kind of guy I liked and if there was anyone that I was interested in. And at the time I only knew five men in the church. so. He asked me, give me, you know, five men that you would consider marrying in the church. And I was like, I only know five. <laughs> um, it was kind of funny. And I, you know, uh, I, I was, I had an impression to marry a particular, uh, that there were two men in particular that I was impressed that I was leaning more towards, but I did want to hear what I had, a, I had a really great friend from Centennial Park one time tell me, because Centennial Park does uh, pl placement marriage as well. And uh, I had a very smart Alec friend who um, I'm pretty sure he wanted me as a wife, frankly. Um, I was like, there's no way I would join Centennial Park because uh, I want to be the one in charge of who says uh, who I should marry. And he goes, well, you did it twice on your own. How'd that turn out? I was like, ooh, burn. Um, <laughs> so I very much wanted the opinion of who I was being told was the prophet and who was the mouthpiece for the Lord. And I wanted to hear what they would come back with. And so 
they came back with my um, third husband's name and um, I knew him very well. He was one of my really, really close friends and we were very, very close. Um, we were very, very, um, we were extremely close friends and I, I can't, I, out of respect for him because he is still my friend and out of respect for the church, I'm going to exclude some of the detail here for, out of respect. But there were some things that occurred that were not appropriate. One of the things which being my uh, husband and at the time fiance would not allow me to touch him. Literally, I, w- I like he wouldn't let me hold his hand and he wouldn't I wasn't allowed to give him a kiss on the cheek or um, to even kiss him until the day we got married. And he insisted on getting married three months after we were engaged. And in this particular church, that's like unheard of. You get married pretty quickly. Um, They want you married preferably before you get off the premises from being said that this is the person you're supposed to marry. But he wanted a long engagement, so we did. And um, there, there was a lot of lies and deception. I knew that he had attraction to other men. He just didn't want me to kiss him or touch him or have anything to do with him. And he kept citing this. The reason was because of the law of purity. And I went back to the leadership and I said, is this legitimate? Is this really something that is being asked as part of the church? And they said, no, no, no. And I said, and so I would go back to him and say, this is not (laughs) what I this is not what the church leadership is telling me. And he says, no, it's what they told me. And they, you know, they assured it to me and uh, it became a pretty deep source of issue. And um, along with the lying and the deception, and he really wasn't who he said he was. Um, But I married him because I had faith. I had faith that it was going to be a learning experience for me. I knew that it was a learning experience for me. I knew that I was going to grow from this. I knew that it was going to be a good experience. And he was my really close friend and he was a very close friend of mine. And I did love him, um, probably not as a spouse, but I did, I did love him very deeply by the time we were married. Um, unfortunately for him, he did not love me. Um, as a spouse and he um, very much was disgusted by me and told me every day that he was disgusted by me and that he was grossed out by me and he and did he you ever have a discussion life. about his sexuality um we did actually have a discussion about his sexuality and um we we were very he was very open with me and he did tell me that he um I don't want to air his dirty laundry or anything but Um, we did have a pretty, a pretty clear discussion about his sexuality and what he believed. And he very much had the faith that if he was married in this way, that God would let him be attracted to women and that God would let him want to be intimate with a wife and, um, wanted to be a heterosexual man. And my first husband was bisexual. And so it was not an issue for me. Um, We had a very healthy sex life. We had a very 
fulfilling marriage as far as intimacy goes. And so it was an, I, I just, in my mind, a straight man doesn't go and have sex with other women. And so a gay man or a bisexual man shouldn't go and have sex with other people. Right. And so as long as you're faithful to me, um, that really, it's not a concern for me. I'm, I'm much more liberal feeling about that than most fundamentalists are. I guess that's kind of what makes me stand out in the crowd because I'm not, I, my, my personal feeling is judgment is left to God. And that's not my job. My job is to love one another. My job is to love my neighbor. My job is to um, love my fellow man and to turn the other cheek and to grow from the crap that we get thrown in our garden. And so I was married to this man. Um, we did not consummate our marriage for two weeks. Um, it took pretty much a talk with the leadership to force him or not, not force him like he was raped, but uh, to basically say you either consummate your marriage or you're not going to be married anymore um, for him to actually be intimate with me as a spouse. And um, that was really, really hard on me. Those two weeks was really, really hard on me. I, I did a lot of faith searching and God kept saying, okay, stay in it. I need you to be in it for a little, you know, I, I need you to be in it. And I had a lot of faith that it was for a reason and there was a purpose and, um, and that I needed to stick with it. And so continued being part of this church. And it was really interesting going from a single girl in a plague world. And that's kind of like my key term for myself. I'm a single girl in a plague world to being married in a plague world. My friends disappeared. And I think my friends disappeared because it wasn't an option for their family anymore. That was hard. It was really hard. And I was abandoned and I was left to be with this man that didn't love me and didn't want anything to do with me intimately. I was, you know, a plus size, I, I am a plus size girl. And um, he would tell me that my fat was disgusting, that my, my body was disgusting and my, everything about me was gross and awful and nasty. And I don't think I've been depressed in my entire life, but that broke me. I was definitely, when you talk about broken heart, contrite spirit, God, he was working really, really hard. God was working really, really hard through this man that I perceived was this awful person of an of a of a husband. He was giving me that broken heart and that very contrite spirit. And I did everything he asked me. He I'd been biting my nails since I was a toddler. He asked me to stop biting my nails, stop getting acrylics. I did. He told me to stop wearing makeup. And if any of you know me, I love my makeup. He asked me to stop wearing my makeup. I did. Uh, without question, without hesitation, I did anything that my husband asked me to do. And how did your um, children fare with all of this? They they actually liked him. Um, they were scared of him at some times because he was very bipolar. Um, for instance, one particular instance, a friend of mine was over and we were playing cards and he came into the room, screamed and said, I can't take this anymore. And then walked out. And then we literally looked at each other and was like, what the hell was that about? And then he came back in the room and he pretended like nothing ever happened. And we said, what just happened? And he goes, what are you talking about? 
you just came in the room and screamed. Huh? So the therapist in me was like, wow, what psychiatric disorder does this man have? Um, and he's still my friend today. And so I don't want to, again, air his dirty laundry, but those were the type of things that happen quite often in my marriage. And I, and, and I personally break it down to internally, he was gay and he wanted nothing more than to love me. And he just couldn't. And he was literally going crazy because of it. Somehow hoping like literally the very few times we were intimate in our marriage, somehow I became pregnant, (laughs) you know, something causes that, you know, I was excited. I, 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 um, in this process of being very connected to the other side and very spiritual, I, I knew that I had a little girl coming and, um, I was able to conceive her and she was pretty prevalent in my spirit. I, I had, I wanted to put up a, a, a hammock in my yard so that I could be comfortable in my pregnancy. It fell out of the, I fell out of the tree and I smashed my SI joint on my hip and I was in a lot of pain and they put me on bed rest for three weeks. And that three weeks I was living in hell. He expected me to still clean the house and cook food and do everything that I did before. (laughs) And he was very angry that I wasn't cleaning the house and doing things because I was on bed rest. I was supposed to be staying off my feet. And in that time, I was um, sitting on my bed and he was, and I was crying and he came in and I said, and he said, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm upset because my husband doesn't love me and I don't know if he ever will. That was literally his opportunity to be like, no, babe, I love you. And da, 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 you're carrying my baby. No, that was his opportunity to tell me how much of a monster he thought I was and how much of a terrible person I was. Some things occurred and two days later, I didn't have a baby. And the baby had died, um, according to the ultrasound, because the age of the baby, um, the heartbeat had stopped literally two days prior. The first words out of my mouth was, you bastard, you killed my baby. And that's very much what I believe that, you know, what occurred that night contributed to my daughter's death. And um, at the time he had logged onto my tablet on my computer, on my tablet under his Facebook. And I think he did it intentionally so that I would catch him. And um, my phone, my tablet dinged. There were naked pictures of a guy on my tablet. And I was like, whoa, what? And then I scrolled up and my husband had been sending naked pictures between him and another man the whole time we were married. I still was willing to stay with this man, but he chose to leave me and I was okay with that. And he's like, you're not going to stop me. And I was like, no, my house has no bars. Like, I'm not going to hold you here if you don't want to be here. So he left. That was really, really hard on me. And that was probably the hardest time in my life. My daughter died. A week later, I delivered her at home. Two days later, my husband left me and I was divorced three days later. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that was quite the week. No one from that church was there for me. They didn't want to take sides. So instead, they just didn't talk to me. They didn't reach out. They didn't call me. They didn't come to see me. They didn't say, how are you? They weren't there for me. And I said, 
I literally said to myself, if this is the Zion people and where I'm going to spend eternity, I don't want to be there. I turned away from the church, this particular church for a little while. And then late December, I got impressed to go back again and talk with them. And um, I had some conversations with the leadership. I had a resolve and I had a conversation with the prophet. And literally the second I was done, God said, okay, you're done. You're done here. Time to move on to your next adventure. (laughs) What? What does that mean? So for the past two and a half years, I've been an independent fundamentalist. And yes, I accept gays. Yes, I accept people that normally fundamentalists don't accept. Because guess what? That's not my job. My job is to love one another. My job is to love my fellow man. Hopefully, I can love and appreciate others. Um, In this process, I have courted a lot of people. Um, I've looked into a lot of people, rather. Um, I only officially have courted the handful, but I've looked into a lot of people um, for marriage. And I acknowledge that I'm a total unicorn, which means that I'm untouchable and I'm the, you know, I'm the one that everyone wants but can't catch, right? And I acknowledge this and I... I'm not going to marry someone just because someone says that they had a dream about me. I'm not going to marry someone unless I am in love with them. And I know that they are in love with me and never going to allow someone else to tell me who I should marry ever again. Um, I have friends in that church. I love that the people in that church, it's just, it was a stepping stone for my life and that's it. I just look back on my experiences over the past eight years of being in fundamentalism. And I go, wow, I wouldn't have learned this particular lesson or this particular thing in fundamentalism if I hadn't had all those experiences before it. And it really is line upon line, precept upon precept. I have faith that God's going to lead me to the family that I'm supposed to be with. About two and a half years ago, one of my friends, actually just shortly after my husband left, A friend of mine said, hey, um, there's this TV show lady that's looking to cast for this TV show. Um, I think you'd be perfect for TV. And maybe that's where you can fire your husband. And so I got involved with this TV show as potentially as someone that was going to be on the show. And then then later I ended up working as part of the production out of respect for the show. I can't reveal what show that is. Uh, it's kind of funny because when I was just kind of talking with the lady for to with casting, I kept sending her friends of mine that I thought would be good. And she's like, gosh, you know, everybody. And I was like, yeah, I kind of had to because of, you know, I was kind I kind of venture everywhere. And I was like, yeah, I kind of do know kind of everybody. (laughs) And it's kind of true. I kind of poke my nose in pretty much all the different groups. And she's like, well, can we maybe hire you to help just kind of consulting with the show. And I was like, sure. (laughs) And so um, fortunately, there are some really awesome friends of mine that are on the show and I'm so excited for them and their lessons that they're learning. And it's been a really great two and a half years working with with people more closely and and, uh, more intimately in in that capacity. And um, I still do marriage. I actually gave up my marriage therapy license because in the state of Utah, I can't have a dual relationship with my clients. Fundamentalist community is very small. 
<laughs> it's large, but small at the same time. And so uh, there's no one that I wouldn't have a dual relationship with. And so I chose to give up my marriage and family therapy license so that I can do more intimate marriage counseling. And so not, I can't say the word counseling now. I have to say marriage and family coach. And so I'm a marriage and family life coach and I go into families' homes and I help them bang out their problems in their marriages. My biggest thing is I had someone one time ask me to come up to Salt Lake to help work with a family up there that was a fundamentalist family. And I said, well, to make it worth it, I need to like be there for a few hours. And in those few hours, I got so much more work done. And so now I literally just go up and I do large sessions and long sessions to go up and work on a marriage for an entire weekend and knock it out instead of this whole one hour for lifetime, even though half the marriage is already emotionally out of it on their first meeting, on their first session. And so um, I find that my clients get 10 times the success rate than um, a typical marriage therapist session, which would be one hour a week for forever. And so that's, that's what I do now. I help with the show. I am a marriage, cons- I'm a marriage consultant. And I also am writing a few books to help with marriage. And I believe strongly in the love in marriage. And I believe strongly in, in the community of a plural family. And I can't wait until every time that I break up with a family or if I'm, I just went through a really rough um, breakup with a family and um, that I had been focused on for the past seven months and it's fairly fresh. And it was a couple of weeks ago and it was really hard for me, but every time that I, something like that happens, I go, wow. God's preparing an even cooler family for me. They're just waiting for me or they're getting ready for me or I'm getting ready for them. And I just can't wait for that day to happen. So thank you for sharing all of that and being so vulnerable and open. What would you say to people who are critical of women who want to be in plural relationships? It's not for everybody. (laughs) It's not for everybody. I, um, I don't uh, push it on anybody. I don't, um, I don't think that it is for everybody. I think that it, in women that want to be in plural relationships are, that are choosing it because they want it, it's different than someone that's born in it and forced on it. Just like any, rela- every, any religion, um, they need to grow their, uh, like, had I been a good upstanding LDS woman from the age of infancy until 18 and I married a return missionary, my life would look totally different. And so everything happens in the perfect time, the perfect place, with the perfect people and the perfect conversations. I strongly believe that. Is there anything you want to share with the audience that we haven't covered? I shared a lot. <laughs> I I shared a lot of vulnerability. I just want everyone to know that like the people that I talked about in this podcast, I don't want any of them to think that I think anything negative about them or, and I don't want them to think that I think that they're bad people. I want them to understand that 
they were in my life for a learning lesson that I love and appreciate and that I, I love and I appreciate and I value my experiences that I've had with each and every one of them. And I look forward to more. Okay. Well, where can people find you if they want to know, meet you, talk to you, know more about you? Okay. So it's kind of funny. I actually have a fan club. How cool is this? Someone, uh, someone created a fan club for me. So you could actually go to Facebook and go to Mary Ellen Christ fan club. How cool is that? Um, I also have a YouTube channel and it's life with Mary Ellen. And, um, I have not put a video on there for a little while, but, um, I actually was just going through my camera going, okay, I literally have about 30 things that I filmed that I need to edit and put on my YouTube channel. So um, it's really fun and it's great. There is also a group called Seeking Sister Wife and other TLC shows positive, uh, positive something. Um, I'm we'll the sure admin on that post. Huh? We'll make sure to link it in the post. Yeah, link it in the post. I'm on there. I actually do a Facebook Live on there every single week about, I call it, days of our plague lives. And I just talk about what's going on in my plague life. And I talk about different polygamous subjects on there. And um, I did it one time and everyone's like, do more. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I, uh, I do that. And um, I'm just a happy mom. And I've got my goats that I love and my kids that I love and my children that I love and my God that I love and my mom that I love. So... Yeah. Okay. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. And Mary Ellen, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.